I, I do pray that uh, you guys were able to listen to the passages, the sermons from last week uh, that Pastor Joe and Pastor Patrick preached on chapter 14 that we're going to look at this morning, chapter 14. They, they covered the first 24 verses. So compared to what those guys had to do, I've got a piece of cake this morning. But really, what they did last week was set the stage for what we're going to talk about uh, this morning. I, I think within the context of the, uh, the verses that Pastor Sam read for us this morning, we see an interesting context that was established in those first 25 verses. Because Jesus had met with a group, a group of lawyers and, and Pharisees at the home of one of the rulers of the Pharisees. Uh, and it was all about uh, the topic of who gets invited to the party? Who gets invited to the party? And I, I just thank God this morning that the invitation to the party has been extended to all of us. Each and every one of us who will spend eternity with Jesus will do so because we were invited by our Lord to become a member of his eternal covenant family. Now, here's an interesting thing. You know, once you get that invitation, it's a permanent invitation. There's no going back on that invitation. You know, Jesus himself said in John 6, 39, and this is the will of God, that I should not lose even one. Think about that. Even one of all those he has given me, but I shall raise them up on the last day. Glory, hallelujah. He's going to raise us up on that last day. So, so here we go. We pick up this story in verses 25 through 35. And as Pastor Sam said, uh, it's not hard to understand what Jesus is saying, but it is hard to accept it. And, and I think the key to accepting what Jesus is getting ready to lay out before us is actually contained in that little phrase at the end of verse number 35. And this is what Jesus says. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's a problematic proclamation that Jesus has put before all of us. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And I pray this morning that you've got your listening ears on. And as we listen to the Lord speak, the key concept that I think I want to zero in on is one simple word. It's the word disciple. Now, here's, here's, a, here's a definition, a part of a definition of what it means to be a disciple. A disciple is one who makes it as a requirement, an obligation to make the mental effort needed to understand what it takes to be a disciple. And in this case, obviously, a disciple of Jesus Christ. You know, that's, that's ultimately what Christ is, is aiming at. How deeply have you considered what is required to be his disciple? And are you willing 
to pay the price. So here's the bottom line question. As we contemplate what Jesus is getting ready to tell us, as we think about the concept of what it is to be a disciple, here's the, here's the question. Have you considered deeply what it means to be a disciple of Christ? Now, this, this first group of Jewish leadership that uh, was addressed in chapter 14, uh, I think it was pretty obvious. They, they were kind of confused uh, about what it took to, uh, to become a disciple or to be a disciple of Christ. So after leaving the party, Jesus is recorded by Luke as stopping in his tracks and turning around to address the crowd. Luke writes that the, the crowd was just going alone. You know, it's easy to just go alone until the cost becomes too high. You know, as I look at this group, I, I truly think it was a diverse group, and no doubt there were some of them that were genuine disciples. However, Jesus recognized that the vast majority of the great crowd were just caught up in the wonder of what was going on. And as a, as a result, Jesus decides to take a moment, to pause, and to help these people understand what it truly means to be his disciple. To follow Jesus, a person must carefully consider what it truly cost him or her to do so. So Jesus turns to the crowd because he knows that for most of them, their motivation is all wrong. So he's going to take a time, a moment here to clear up the confusion, and he's, he's going to issue a series of what I call proclamations, problematic proclamations, so that the crowd would understand what it took to be his disciple. There's three of those proclamations that we're, we're going to cover uh, this morning. The first is concerning the cross you must bear, concerning making accounting miscalculation, and a proclamation concerning the cross contamination problem. The cross you are going to bear, accounting miscalculation, and the cross contamination problem. But remember, <laughs> but remember, he who has ears, let him hear. So, so let's start off with that first one. Uh, in order to be a disciple of Christ, it's a path that leads to a cross, but to get there, a person must face a very big problem. Now, now here's the problem. To bear your cross, you must hate everything else. And to hate everything else, Jesus strikes at the heart of what most people hold most dear in life because he hated, what he hated included everything that they held dear to themselves. And there's two things in particular that Jesus calls for us to hate in this passage. He calls us to hate our loved ones, the ones whom we hold most dear 
in life. And then he calls us to hate the love for themselves, which often trumps everything that we hold most dear. It's about renouncing all of one's possessions, about disregarding all that we love and the people that we hold dear. And it's requiring by Jesus, from Jesus, a lifelong, ongoing pursuit of him. So earlier, you know, this is not the first time that Jesus has, has told his disciples that you had to hate your family in order to follow him. In Luke 8, 21, Jesus proclaimed that you're only his disciple if you will hear and do the will of God over the love for your family. Jesus is serious about this thing of loving him above all else. Now, I could imagine for the people that were listening to Jesus' words, even as I could imagine it's hard for us to hear Jesus say words of, you've got to hate your family. To hate your family, uh, especially at that time, in, in that culture, family was it. Uh, it's not like today where our culture is doing its very best to destroy the definition of family. It's all part of Satan's plan. And, and Satan has a plan to disrupt God's plan. But for the Jews, they clearly understood that God's plan was really centered around the health and vitality of the family. For they all knew that the promised Messiah would come through a human family. So they made every effort to preserve the family structure. But you know, isn't it kind of a little bit ironic that in their zeal to preserve family, uh, in their understanding of the lineage of Messiah, it all, their confusion prevented them from seeing the very thing that they wanted most to see. And what was that? The Messiah. He was standing there right in front of them. But because of their blindness, because of their refusal to hear, they could not see Jesus. You know, being part of a family is a big deal. I think we all can relate to that to some degree. It has often been said that one of the greatest factors that will impact the course of your life is the family that you were born into. But Jesus is issuing this problematic proclamation that you've got to hate your family. It's a, it's a problem that we have a hard time accepting because family is so important to us. I, I've been blessed uh, to, to travel around the world and one of the interesting things that I've encountered, no matter where I've landed, is that people in under, other countries have always said that it is a privilege to be born in America. To be born in the American family. I call it American privilege. You know, there's, there's a lot of talk going on today concerning privilege. And let me tell you the truth this morning, folks. Every person sitting in this room has been born with some kind of privilege. And the fact of the matter is that some of us are born with more privilege than others. 
Your family matters. And here's what Jesus is talking about, that in order to be his disciple, you've got to hate your family. No matter what level of privilege you've been born with or not born with, Jesus is telling you that in order to be his disciple, you've got to hate it. That's a problematic proclamation. It was a problem back in the first century A.D., and it's a problem in the 21st century today because Jesus is declaring that if you put your privilege ahead of loving God, loving people, and impacting the world, you can't be his disciple. Beloved, sometimes it seems to me that we just don't have enough believers who love Jesus Christ more than they love their privilege. Are you willing this morning to love Jesus more than your privilege? If you do, you've got to count the cost of following Jesus and being counted as his disciple. The cost of following Jesus is high. Jesus said in Luke 9.58 that foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He put it another way in, in John 12.25, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. It doesn't matter where you are on this privilege question, but Jesus is demanding an answer to the question, who do you love more? It comes down to the choice of making the choice of choosing between uh, the privilege that you were born with or the privilege of following Jesus. But let's talk a little bit about this hate issue. That's a strong Word And I think to really grasp it, we ought to do a good job of letting Scripture interpret Scripture. So, so if you would, turn with me quickly to Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 37. Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 37. And I think the Bible does a great job of helping us to understand what it means to hate. Here's what uh, Christ said in Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 37. But do not think that I've come to bring peace to the world. You know, we, we could stop right there. Except that's not the message for this morning. You know, we live in an era that sometimes it's obsessed with peace. But Jesus says, I didn't come to bring peace to the world. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemy will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves me, loves son or daughter more than me, is not worthy of me. And really, beloved, this morning, that's the answer to the question. In verse 30, 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy 
of me. Hate is being used by Jesus in these verses to establish a matter of degree. A matter of degree. It would be contradictory for Jesus to ever teach that a person, that he expects a person to hate anyone, let alone their family. That, that's not the point. But what, it, what Jesus is saying that uh, to be a disciple of Christ is so much greater than anything else we could do. The point is that as we look at our love for Christ, everything else looks like hate. You know, Jesus talked about self-love. And self-love is an ugly thing. It always places self above everything else. And to drive home the point of loving him even over loving yourself, Jesus uses a very clear, a very stark example. He says that you've got to pick up your cross. Did you realize that you have a cross? And your cross is different than my cross. But whatever cross the Lord has placed in, the, in your life, Jesus is saying, you got to pick it up. Here's the real question. What does the cross mean to you? Now, for Jesus, the cross was very clear. The cross meant death, an undeserved but necessary death, a death ordained by God but accomplished through the evil deeds of fallen humanity. Society saw Jesus as guilty, and when the world sees you as guilty, they'll put you to death in many different ways. Jesus is demanding a high cost to become his disciple. And the unredeemed are just not willing to pay the price. No wonder, no wonder Jesus said that wide is the gate that leads to destruction. And many will go through the wide path. But to be a disciple of Christ, you must come through the narrow gate. The narrow gate leads to a narrow path. And that's why Jesus again said in verse 27, whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You got to go through the narrow gate. But, but there's a problematic little phrase after verse 27 that closes verse 27. He says, come after me. When it comes to following Jesus, it's all about coming after him. A disciple follows the path that Jesus has already forged. Folks, we don't get the luxury of creating our own path. Jesus has established the path, and the path is narrow. Counting the cost is not about working our way into God's love, but rather we get the favor of working out our salvation to the glory of God Almighty. Just to put it in a little theological terms, think of it this way. Justification, being declared righteous by Jesus Christ, opens the door to sanctification. 
Justification opens the door to sanctification. And all who enter through that narrow gate do so because they have been justified by the work of Jesus Christ alone. We say that we've been justified by faith alone, through grace alone, by Christ alone, as presented in the Scripture alone. But as James, the brother of Jesus, and the first leader of the church at Jerusalem proclaimed, faith by itself is dead. So by definition, justification leads to the work of sanctification. So think of sanctification as walking along the narrow path to become more and more like Christ. We come to Jesus to follow after him. So so that kind of brings me to my second point. Uh, Two things on on the second point about counting, accounting miscalculation. Here's the deal. It will cost you to follow Jesus. It will cost you even more not to follow him. Did you get that? It, It will cost you to follow Jesus but it will cost you even more not to follow him. And so to drive home that point, Jesus uses a couple of really good examples. It'll take Jesus to come up with some good examples, but he really does in this passage. The first one has to do with the construction of a building. Uh, You know, that building had to have been something. Everybody in the town was talking about the building. They were all marveling at who would have enough wealth to take on the project of building such a building. But indeed, that was the problem because the man had miscalculated what it would take to complete the building. Now, making that kind of mistake carries with it serious, lifelong, life-changing consequences. Could you imagine the stories that were told about that man? Now, we all like a good story, don't we? Say amen. (laughs) You know, I remember a story that was told me from a man who always enjoyed weaving a good tale. Interesting enough, this story was actually taken from events that occurred in the man's life. It seemed that as a young lad, just as he started elementary school, the man discovered that he had a knack for learning. And one morning while getting ready for school, the man's stepfather came into his room and told him that he was no longer going to school anymore. But from that point forward, he would join his stepdad every day and work in the farm. It was the most devastating day in that young boy's life. So he grows up, he becomes an expert farmer, and eventually leaves the childhood farm to be working as the lead man on another farm. He marries and begins to have children of his own. His children grow up and and they attend school. And for the man to see them attain a good education was enough to put all of the injustice and to continue to work on that farm until one day when once again, his world was was shattered. Following a long day of work, 
the owner of the farm came to the man and informed him that starting the next week, he was to pull his two sons out of the school to begin working on the farm. It was a problematic proclamation. Well, that night, the man, along with his wife, began to consider what they needed to do. Yeah, up to that point in life, again, he had accepted his plight in life with the hopes that he could make a difference for his family. But now he has to make the hardest decision in his life. What does he do? Does he yank his sons out of school or does he take another path? Well, after counting the calls, he decides that he has to take the risk, leave the farm behind, no matter what price he has to pay. And that's exactly what he does. But let me just cut this story a little bit short. The man, the man in this story was my dad. He was the young lad who had been yanked out of school to work the fields just as he was beginning to blossom in his classwork. When I was a young boy, just beginning to blossom in school myself, my dad, some 20 years later, now faced the same situation and it was his turn to count the cost. The choice he made and the price he paid has impacted everything about who I was to become as a man. And as I stand here this morning, if it had not been for my dad counting the cost and paying the price, I would not be speaking to you this morning. My dad passed away into the arms of Jesus earlier this year, and I had the privilege of spending the last five days of my dad's life with him. And as I watched my dad die, every time I would look over him at him, I'd think about this story. My dad counted the cost. My dad understood for a black man in southern Louisiana to defy the commands of a white man could cost him his life. He had witnessed that, and even worse, happened many times to many black people. My, my dad understand there was a chance that the man could track him down, and in the culture of racism that existed at that time, could force him back on that farm. And folks, that's exactly what that man did. He came after my dad with everything he had. But times were changing just a bit in the late 60s in our country. The government, yes, the government, was waking up to the racial injustice that existed in our country and had started to intervene. So, yeah, I believe that government can do bad, but I also think they can do good. And so as I held my dad's dying hands in my hands, I thought about all the sacrifices he had made so that I could have the opportunities he never had. Now sure, some of you out there this morning could tell similar stories. And you should be proud of your family heritage as well. But you know, it's one thing to have to deal with the normal stuff that just comes along with trying to make it in a fallen world. But it just seems a bit strange to me that on top of all of that stuff, this dear man that I was watching take his last breath 
had to also suffer so much because he was born black. But let me say this to you. And I tell you this morning, my dad counted the cost and he paid the price. But hear this, West Park, hear this, beloved of the Lord. As much as I knew that my dad loved me, but compared to the love that Jesus Christ has for me, it looks like hate. For while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? But Jesus wants you to know this morning that if you're willing, you too can pay the cost to be his disciple. But there's another example that Christ uses. Uh, in verse uh, 31, he says, What king going down to encounter another king in war will not first sit down and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? In verse 32, And if not, while the other is yet a great ways off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Now certainly, if a king went into battle greatly outnumbered, that's a bad mistake. That's a bad mistake. Not always, but usually that does not turn out well. But you know, it's interesting, in the Bible we have plenty of examples where God uses a few to defeat the many. Uh, just remember the story of Gideon. And let me say this up front. With Jesus on my side, I don't care how many are standing against me, for I would rather have one Jesus with me than an infinite number of anything else against me. But is that really what Jesus is talking about here? I, th I think you have to answer a tricky little question first. Which king in this parable is Jesus? Which king represents Jesus? Now, as I've already said, if I'm walking with Jesus, I really don't care how big the odds are against me. And certainly that's one way of taking a look at this parable. But, but there's another way to think about it as well. What if the king with the 20,000 troops actually is representing King Jesus? You see, from the, the world's perspective, they think they have us outnumbered. They think they have us outsmarted. Uh, they think that they are much better positioned to address the issues of life than holding on to some backwards belief in an omnipotent God. Uh, I could imagine the wise of the world saying, those poor little Christians, they have to rely on miracles and a God they can't see to protect them. How foolish they look talking about the power of the Holy Spirit when we have guns and planes and mighty armies to fight our battles. Just look at how powerful our science is. We have human beings, we've sent human beings to the moon and returned them safely home. Pretty soon, pretty soon, we're going to ensure the survival of the entire human race by planting colonies in outer space, outer space. 
And all these religious fanatics have to do is to believe in some guy who got himself killed, and they had to come up with this wild story that he rose from the grave after three days. Give me a break. You know, folks, sadly, that's exactly the way the world looks at us. And why is that? Because too many disciples of Christ have miscalculated the cost of following Jesus. They've made a serious counting miscalculation. And that's a big mistake. Why? Because one day, Jesus is coming back, and as Pastor Sam often says, boy, is he mad. (laughs) And he's bringing with him some big guns. He will unleash legions upon legions of his forces to take down everything this fallen world has to offer. Jesus, King Jesus is coming back with a big army. But, here's a big but, but in his unimaginable grace, God offers us a chance to make peace with him before the terrible day of the Lord. Hear those words again. And if not, in verse 32, and if not, while the other is yet a great way off, He sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Until that final door slams shut on this age, Jesus is offering peace to those who are still a long way off for him. If he's knocking, if he's knocking at the door of your heart this morning, let him in. He's offering you terms of peace. Will you accept? So that leads me to this final proclamation, and and I'm going to be brief. After issuing a a proclamation concerning who we love, about taking up your cross, about counting the cost, Jesus gives one final proclamation to those who would become his disciples, and it's this. Don't succumb to cross-contamination. Jesus, in a brilliant stroke of insight, uses the example of salt to drive home his final point. In fact, I I think it's the most important aspect of this entire passage. That's why I've spent so little time on it. Well, what's what's the deal with salt? And especially the issue of salt losing its saltiness. Well, it all has to do with contamination. It all has to do with contamination. You know, salt has many purposes, including enhancing the taste of food and preserving it as well. But I really don't think that's what Jesus is trying to get at with this example. Back in Jesus' day, salt was also a very important agricultural item as well. Mixed in with the soil, it became a critical ingredient of the fertilizer needed to produce a good harvest. However, there there was a problem with the salt that was produced in that region. 
Most of it came from the Dead Sea. And the problem with Dead Sea salt is that it was cross-contaminated with gypsum. Too much gypsum and the salt compound would just fall apart when it was applied to whatever use it was intended to serve. And so that occurred when the contaminated salt would not serve the critical function of enhancing the fertilizer, the manure that Jesus refers to in this passage. Now, one way that salt enhanced the property of the manure was through smell control. However, if there was too much gypsum mixed into the salt, well, let's just say wearing a face mask wouldn't help too much. <laughs> when the people of God began to lose their saltiness and we start to smell like the world, it's a problem. As disciples of Christ, following the narrow path that Christ has established for his church, we have to be careful not to cross-contaminate our walk by mixing in the things of the world. We can't be part Christ and part church. The cross that Jesus has demanded that we pick up just cannot be cross-contaminated with what is important to the world, but not important to God. The world values tall towers, self-love, earthly weapons. But for the disciple of Christ, all of that stuff is just cross-contamination. Trying to incorporate that stuff into the narrow path will cause us to lose our saltiness. It's a cost a disciple of Christ simply cannot afford to pay. Because if we make the mistake of having too much cross-contamination in the church, instead, listen up, instead of being a stench in the nostrils of humanity, we will become a stench in the nostrils of God. Jesus never had the problem of cross-contamination. He knew the cross, he knew the price, he knew the cost when he laid down his life, but for the joy of the cross, he endured its suffering and shame. He paid the cost so that the lives of his disciples would become a sweet-smelling aroma in the nostrils of God. So as we close, as we close, I'm back to where I started. The key word in this passage is disciple. And Jesus has issued a series of problematic proclamations. A proclamation concerning the cross you must bear, concerning the counting miscalculation, concerning the cross contamination problem. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Don't get thrown away. Don't lose your saltiness.
Make peace with Christ. Do it today. Become his disciple. Know the cost. Pay the cost. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, it's, it's again that we come mindful of, first of all, Lord, the price you had to pay. You hung on that cross, Lord, and you would not come down just to save us. We thank you, Father. We know the cost that you had to pay. And now, likewise, Lord, as we've become your disciples, as, as we've been invited to the party, as we now have a seat at the table, Father, help us to remember that there's a cost that we need to pay and a God that we need to glorify. Thank you for all that you do, Lord, for it's in Christ's name we pray.